Our most intimate experience can be our greatest inspiration. The place where ideas are born. But what if those ideas stay in hiding? What if they never have the chance to be shared? This show creates a safe space for giving talks anonymously. We value ideas over identity, substance over style. You cannot talk publicly about it. It impacted my whole life. I just don't have the constitution to get up on a stage and give a talk. I never told from Ted and Audible, this is Sincerely X. I can never undo what was done to me. Being held against my will at gunpoint. I can never unsee what I saw. Screaming in my sleep and waking my son up. They say you ain't nothing, you ain't never gonna be nothing. I need you to leave me the F alone. It's fight or flight. Push through or bail. And I wasn't supposed to be here. You ain't nothing, you ain't never gonna be nothing. But I am. This woman who wasn't supposed to be here is a teacher in a rough neighborhood. And before that, she was a kid in a rough neighborhood. On our first phone call, she told us what she was like as a young girl with hidden potential. I was highly intuitive. I was very inquisitive. But I found that the people around me, because we were in poverty, really didn't want to engage with me. And when I would go into school, teachers didn't see the giftedness in me. And of course, I didn't know that it was there. All I knew was I liked to read. Um, I wanted to read encyclopedias. I read all the volumes and all that. Her story is tough, one of the toughest I've heard. By the time she turned 18, she had experienced abandonment, abuse, homelessness. She was constantly diminished by the people who were supposed to love her. She heard things, things that still haunt her today. You know, I fight through those voices because I heard it so often. You ain't nothing, you ain't never going to be nothing. Like, I heard that more than I heard my name, really legitimately heard that more than I heard my name growing up. She's determined to use her story to help kids who face the same obstacles. And the idea she'll share centers on how to identify those gifted kids living in poverty. But when the day to record the talk arrived, this teacher found herself overwhelmed by those voices she'd heard her whole life, the ones that told her she'd never amount to anything. This is from our first recording session. Can I start over? You totally can. You actually, you sound great. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Okay. 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 Give me a second. Um, What's tripping you up? Um, that's, that's my problem. That's the issue with perfectionism, man. And, and I mean, we need to get a divorce, but I just keep holding on. Can I have five minutes? I'm rethinking it. Hold on. Sorry. The voices from her past got the better of her that day, but she was determined to try again. And when we sat down for our second recording session, she was ready. How do you feel right now as you're about to give the talk? I feel nervous, but I also feel um, like every time I do the talk, I vindicate a little piece of myself that feels trapped by my story. So... Yeah, my hands are sweating, but at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to do it. I want to warn you that her story contains some brief yet 
graphic mentions of sexual assault and violence. So if content of that nature is a trigger for you, you might want to skip this episode. As she begins the talk, my suggestion, as always, is that you don't try to figure out who this speaker is. Suspend judgment. Just listen. I wasn't supposed to be here. They say you ain't nothing, you ain't never gonna be nothing. I saw my first murder when I was just 11 years old. By the time I was 15, I was on my own, sleeping outside under bridges and park benches, unable to bathe, shower, or even brush my teeth for months. I ate out of garbage cans. According to the adults around me, I was damaged and more likely to be dead or in prison than to become a scholar. But now, I'm an AP English teacher and an advocate for gifted and talented children in poverty. How could they have been so wrong about me? I see myself in a lot of the kids I teach today. From an early age, I loved words and I loved learning, even though I didn't particularly love school. I remember sitting Indian style on my Bhopal's floor, watching Nightline. It was my grandfather's favorite show and mine too. I mean, I was an eight-year-old enamored with Ted Koppel in the middle of what we affectionately call the hood. I will never forget the day Koppel provided me with my first piece of elevated diction. He used the word ambiguous. I can't remember exactly the context he used it in, but there was something incredibly significant about it. The next day, I asked my mom what the word ambiguous meant, and she was in the middle of watching Days of Our Lives, and she was like... I don't know, go find a dictionary and look it up. What I was thinking was, how in the world am I supposed to look up a word I don't even know how to spell? Unable to spell it, though, I found myself willfully lost in a sea of lexicon. From that moment on, Diane Sawyer, Renee Descartes, Angela Davis, even some Agatha Christie led me deeper into books. Books became my best friends, and the knowledge from them oozed out of me. Reading was my escape from the war zone I lived in, same as so many children in poverty. Flashing forward to my teenage years, it was the toughest time in my life. I was 14 when my mom sank fully into her crack addiction. Nearly every night I was awakened by men sexually abusing me. I feared sleep when it was coming and I avoided it whenever I could, but every moment when I was awake, my mom abused me too. She yelled at me and degraded me. You ain't nothing. You ain't never going to be nothing. One day, I stood up for myself and begged her to stop hurting me. I told her how she made me feel. I wanted her to pity me. I was honest, and I cried, something I didn't normally do. Her response was to physically attack me and send me out on the streets alone. Then I had to figure out who I was and live with the fear that no one might ever see me as good enough. The scars from my upbringing left me feeling unsafe, hopeless, and afraid like so many children in poverty. I developed a rough exterior to protect me from the constant jabs people threw at me. I brought all that pain, rejection, and self-loathing right into the classroom with me. So in school, many of my teachers might have had a different opinion about me. I was not identified as gifted and talented, but I was identified as a smart-mouthed, annoying know-it-all who asked too many questions and challenged authority all of the time. 
teachers couldn't stand me because I was unmotivated and more likely to be asleep in class if I showed up at all. I remember one time when I was 16, a teacher became enraged when I passed a test after missing two or three weeks of school. I didn't like participating in class, so she assumed I didn't know anything. She accused me of cheating, and I was pissed. She said, I know you cheated because you haven't been here. And I was like, actually, I taught myself the stuff you're teaching us now when I was 10. This made her so mad. Well, it doesn't matter what you think you know. I'm going to fail you. Now, my defiant reply revealed what I want you to know about children in poverty like me. Teacher baby, look, you ain't got to worry about failing me because I'm going to fail myself because you ain't running nothing. Understand me? I dropped the proverbial mic and walked out of the classroom. I knew she didn't believe in me, and I really didn't care. From then on, I was determined to insulate myself from the constant negative feedback I received from teachers. The first adult who believed in me, though, was a woman who lived near my grandfather. Her name was Miss Russell. While wandering the streets, she pulled up alongside of me on this lonely road, rolled down her passenger side window and said, Hi, sweetie. What are you doing out here walking alone in the dark? Can I give you a ride? I didn't know Miss Russell, so I was like, oh, I'm not getting in her car. After going back and forth for about a minute, Miss Russell finally put her foot down and demanded, Get your little butt in this car, girl. That sucked all the thug out of me. It was the first time someone wanted to keep me safe, which meant I was worth something. I went home with her, and Miss Russell began to talk to me. I mean, really talk to me. She cared about my future. She wanted to know where I wanted to attend college, and I shrugged and laughed it off. Ms. Russell said something I'd never heard before. You can do whatever you want to do in life. You are unique, intelligent, and special. I can definitely see you going to college. Finally, someone gave me a kid who thought her life expectancy was age 18, something to believe in. I've encountered so many students like me in my years of teaching. I see so much of myself in them, especially those in poverty. And I've come to realize that there are all sorts of ways that giftedness shows up in high-poverty classrooms. So to simplify things, let's talk about two major behaviors or markers of urban giftedness, disruption and avoidance. Instruction-related disruptions happen pretty frequently in urban classrooms, but the type of disruptions I'm talking about have an element of sophistication. I've had students say everything from creatively crafted insults like, boy, kick rocks until they turn into dust. And I know you ain't talking about me because your head is big as a love boat. Or my teacher in third period talking junk about my grade. I can change my grade, but she can't change the fact her body on backwards. These types of disruptions usually occur because students need to have a voice. Urban gifted kids often have genuine observations and intellectual energy that needs to be fulfilled. So that class clown you keep kicking out of class might be one of your gifted kids. The second way that giftedness shows up in urban classrooms is avoidance. Unlike the students who were more vocal and disruptive, these students don't really say much of anything. They may seem bored or unengaged, they might even use their power 
by not trying at all. Many of them just don't want their peers to know how smart they are. For instance, when I praised the student in front of the class for having the highest score on a difficult test, he reprimanded me in front of that class. See, ain't nobody asking you all that, man. Just shut up. When I asked him to step outside with me to have a private conversation, something I do when students become irate with me in front of the class, he was still visibly angry. I asked him what he thought his behavior said he needed from me, and he told me, I need you to leave me the F alone. Some students have rough exteriors and don't want us to ruin their street cred. You see, street cred is a safety concern for many of our students in rough neighborhoods. They feel being able to maintain a reputation on the streets is more valuable than what we're teaching them in school. I have an example of a couple of solutions that have worked for me. At the beginning of the school year, my students created driving quote to keep them focused and encouraged. They say things like, if I try, I will succeed as long as I don't give up. And I am my own person, so no one can stop me from being successful except for me. I don't have to believe what others say about me. I post them everywhere, on my classroom walls, in the hallway, and even on my door. When times get tough or their behaviors become erratic, I pull those quotes off the wall and I go to that student and I ask them, do you remember this? You wrote this, right? This is your promise to yourself. So how is your current behavior going to help you achieve this? Showing them their words holds them accountable for their behaviors. And it gets them thinking about how important it is to repeat positive affirmations in their lives. Another thing I do that is so important is reeling them into that content using themes students find relatable. By doing this, I'm creating an aesthetic connection. For instance, when we're doing Shakespeare's Othello, the more of Venice, I tell my students, Othello is a tragic hero who brings about his own downfall because he grew up in conditions much like ours, which scarred him and made him unable to love or trust fully. It becomes a source of catharsis for my students because now they have to think about their own proclivities to self-sabotage for fear of being seen as weak or brilliant. And so, I mean, here I am teaching The Myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus at a low-performance school, an essay by an absurdist. But the thing is, it, it's apropos because Sisyphus acknowledges his obstacle is this boulder but he overcomes the boulder because he gets to do what he wants to do with his life. Like he, he denied the gods the ability to control him. And so in that, he has victory over his rock. And so I had to connect my kids to that. What's your boulder, your biggest obstacle, and how do you overcome it and become victorious? There are a host of ways that we can use their experiences to reel them into the content. The key is to let our students know every chance we get that we do believe in them. For so many of them, the classroom is the one place they feel safe enough to dream, grow, and yes, believe it or not, to misbehave. 
Now, if you're a teacher, listen, I'm right here with you. Classroom sizes are often so large, we can't even navigate the classroom without bumping into a child. More often than not, we feel that our hard work and dedication is criticized, undermined, and underappreciated by both students and administrators. For real, I'm not here to beat you down at all. I'm a teacher too. But I was one of those kids, and I want you to know that you do matter. And we do hear you, especially when we act like we don't. Now, if you're a student, I need to leave you with this thought that is in concert with what Ms. Russell said to me. You are unique, intelligent, and special. You can do whatever you decide to do. No matter how hard things get, never give up on yourself, even when it seems like everyone else is. I started off just like you, as a kid in poverty. And I wasn't supposed to be here, but I am. And I'm proof that you can be too. Listening to the speaker, I was struck by what a powerful role model she could be. A teacher who knows how to identify gifted kids in poverty because she was that kind of kid herself. I found myself wishing she could give the talk publicly, and I asked her why she needed to remain anonymous. One reason is because um, my story is kind of, it's hard, it's tough, it's, it's embarrassing. So my colleagues don't know all of this about me. They see me a certain way, and then when they find out my story, it kind of, in their mind, degrades me. It discourages me from wanting to talk about my past. Our speaker's talk began with the voices from her past, telling her she'd never amount to anything. And it struck me that these constant diminishing comments from the adults who are supposed to care for you may be one of the hidden burdens of poverty. I can never undo what was done to me. I can never unsee what I saw. I feel like doing this is a step in a direction where those voices are actually going to start disappearing. They haven't, though. And although I've reconciled with so much that has happened in my past, it's hard because I'm constantly um, just constantly fighting to still feel good about myself, you know, so I had to teach myself, if I try, then I'm actually successful because I didn't allow the voices in my head to say, you can't, so don't even try. And I see this in the kids that I'm working with, even the ones that I'm at the school with now. Is they've been really told their parents weren't successful in school, so now they're not successful. They don't have the tools to help them. And rather than just saying, you know what, but I believe in you, you, you stupid just like your dad. It's part of what she calls the cycle of pain, which is transferred across generations from parent to child. Let me give you a really weird example. My mom had hair that went down to her waist. And when my mom turned 13, my grandmother took her to a barber shop and he cut all of her hair off. So her hair was like three inches long. My um, hair came down to my waist. It's beautiful hair. When I turned 13, my mom sat me down and said, I'm going to trim your edges. She cut all of my hair off. And I didn't think my hair made me beautiful, but my hair was my hair. It was my hair. I didn't want it cut. 
So she made a decision to do something that was painful for her. She did it to me because it was done to her. That feeling of um, worthlessness that was sewn into her life was sewn into mine. In the same way her mother did her, she did me. You know, it's that cycle of pain that we revisit um, on our youth that's really damaging to our kids. One of the secrets to her successful teaching is her intuitive understanding of this pain her students go through, an understanding derived from her own experience. I love, for example, the way she taught Sisyphus in her classroom and used the boulder he was pushing up the hill as a metaphor for whatever her students had to overcome. She had said that each of them had a boulder, and I asked what hers was. My boulder was my anger, because I went from zero to 60 in a second. It's it's like it took a lot for me to get angry, but once I was there, I couldn't calm down. Then she told me a story that she had left out of the talk and all of our previous conversations. It was the story that got her expelled from high school. I threw a desk at a teacher. It was a sub in the class. Um, there was a white guy. It was kind of hot in the classroom. And um, I had asthma. And I asked if I could just open the window. He said I couldn't open the window. And I went to open it anyway because I was hot. And I wasn't the only one who was hot. When I went to open the window, he made this comment about me. It was a racial slur along with something similar to what I had heard my whole life. Well, um, you know, I wasn't going to be anything because I didn't know how to behave. Whatever it was, it made me upset enough to where I didn't become visibly angry. I just remember going to the desk and then blacking out. When I woke up, I was on the floor, and security had me on the floor. And um, I was told by the dean, I had thrown a desk. I had missed the teacher, but I don't remember throwing anything. But I remember inside of me, there was such a profound amount of rage because of what he said. I wanted to hit him with a desk. Hearing the story, it became even clearer to me the difference that a single teacher can make to bring out the worst or the best in their kids. It made me think of the gifted boy in her class who had told her to leave him alone. I asked her what had happened to him. After that, I didn't see him for maybe three weeks. I was worried because I was hoping nothing had happened to him. One day, he came to my classroom Um, This probably may have been about two months later, and he was just like, I just want you to know I was never mad at you. I'm going to another school. It's not like a regular public school. And I just want to thank you and tell you that I'm on track to graduate. And I told him, listen, I understand you guys go through a lot without even knowing your story. Like, I understand that. But just let me know when you're going to graduate so I can come, because I would love to see you walk across that stage. And he told me that he would, but I never saw him again. One of the things that I, that I take from that experience is that 
you know, like that whole concept of watering and planting, there's a seed time and a harvest time. And, you know, sometimes you just have to know that what you did for that kid will resonate with them. I'm curious, do any of your students ever come back afterward to thank you? Most definitely. I like to say I have I have a 98% thank back rate. <laughs> the kids come back about <laughs> 98% of the time. Unfortunately, for the 2% of kids that I, that I never see again, it's probably because they've passed away. And, um, and unfortunately, that is another price you pay when you teach in an urban school. Our kids die. They're murdered. They kill people. They rob people. Um, and I've had numerous students to pass away, but my Facebook feed is ridiculous with students constantly thanking me, praising me. And I have all these letters, you know, um, from students saying, thank you, I love you, I couldn't have made it without you. What this teacher knows is the power of belief. Her story stands as testament to the way a single adult's commitment can change the trajectory of a child's life. She inherited her confidence from Miss Russell, who told her that she was unique, intelligent, and special. And every day in a city somewhere in America, this teacher passes that gift on to her students. You'll find the entire first season of Sincerely X on channels in the Audible app. Original music on this program is composed by the Holiday Brothers, with sound design and mix by Alex Trajano. Michael Weitz and Abigail Tenenbaum helped the speaker prepare her talk. The Sincerely X production team includes Amy Eason, Chloe Shasha, and Kelly Stetzel, with help from Barb Allen. Our executive producers are Darren Triff and Colin Campbell. Creative leadership comes from Chris Anderson at TED and Eric Newsom at Audible. From TED and Audible, this is Sincerely X. Oh, and have you ever wondered what happens to one of our anonymous speakers as they slip out of the studio and back into their lives? And now are you going to go do something to celebrate? Yes, I am. I'm going to read a book at um, a coffee house down the street. I got this book burning a hole in my in my bag, yo. I just been wanting to read this book. What book is it? It is uh, Carl Jung's uh, Memories, Reflections, and it's, it's his memoir. I thought it was going to be something really pulpy, but this is actually much more in <laughs> in keeping with who you are. I love Carl Jung. Oh, my God. I love him. I'm just imagining your room postered with Carl Jung and Ted Koppel. <laughs> yes! Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. You just, you know me. You get me. Oh, my God. <laughs> PRX.